elsewhere in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Before we pray this evening, I want to read uh, to you out of Matthew 11. You don't have to turn there. These are the words of Christ. And it's his invitation to us, Matthew 11, verse 28. And many times, I think, in our Christian life, uh, we forget that we need a Savior. Uh, As believers, we need a Savior. And Jesus gives us this invitation. And what I mean by this is we don't need to be saved from our sins again or receive salvation again. But Jesus is the answer to our lives. He's the answer to our discouragement. Uh, He's the answer to our confusion. And it's connecting with him. It's, a, it's abiding with him. And I was looking at my cell phone last night, and we have a, a place where we charge our cell phones in the kitchen. And my cell phone's sitting over here, and the, here's the, the cord coming, and it's not connected. And there's only one way uh, to, to allow the, the power to come into the phone, and that, that's connected. And a lot of times with Jesus, we're not connected to him. And he's the, he's the power source. And so here's the invitation that Jesus gives. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is targeting those who are laboring and those who are weary. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we pray tonight, let's take Jesus up on his invitation. Let's allow him to be who he said he is and to allow him to give us rest. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your humility that you're gentle and lowly, that you invite us to come to you. And so many times we're trying things in our own effort, in our own strength, and carrying burdens and load that you never intended for us. So we come to you tonight, right where we're at, in the midst of the joys and struggles, we draw near to you. And we choose to take your yoke, to to trade in our our yoke that we're carrying, and to take on your yoke to learn of you. We do pray for rest in our souls. We also pray as we read in Revelation this evening that there would be real encouragement for us, that our eyes would be fixed upon your throne, be fixed upon eternity. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together Ephesians 4, 11 verses, and then we'll go through it. This is verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, and like a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And the throne were 24 elders. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature was like a calf, 
And the third living creature was like a man. And the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around within, and they didn't rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. John is given a vision of heaven. Remember, John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled. He's persecuted. He's writing to seven churches who are going through a very difficult time. And how encouraged he would be and the churches would be of this vision of the throne room of God. God encourages us to put our focus upon heaven. It's difficult for us to do. Sometimes when there is a difficult trial or confusing times, our focus gets onto eternity, but in the daily grind of life, we can forget about the reality of heaven. But that's where our source of joy is. Never did Jesus tell us that this life was gonna be easy. In fact, he told us, in this life, you will have tribulation. That's a good forewarning. It's going to be difficult. You're going to get your can kicked. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus encouraged us and the disciples saying, don't let your heart be troubled because things are going to get better in this life. Is that what he says? He says, no, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will again and receive you unto myself. He's saying, I don't want you to have a heart that's filled with worry, anxiety, depression, trouble, because disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Heaven is that good. Also, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He looked forward to heaven to be glorified with the Father to inherit the church. And then in Colossians 3, we read this. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above. Be heavenly minded. How much time do we really think about heaven? For some, maybe it's a lot, but for a lot of us, it's, it's very little. So this chapter is extremely important, and it's extremely encouraging for us to get a picture, to get an understanding in a greater way what heaven is like and what the throne room of God is like. Even this chapter, at best, is John having a vision of heaven and then trying to put it into words that he understands and we understand. There's an important word, like. He says, it's like this. I'm trying my best to to put this into human language. God tells us that precious is the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So when a believer goes home to be with the Lord, God says, this is precious. I'm getting to bring you home to to be with the Lord. I had a friend text me today, and and he said his brother had gone home to be with the Lord. And he says that his, his brother was seeing the face of God. 
You know, and you could hear the the sorrow but the joy in this text. The sorrow to lose his brother, but the peace of knowing that his brother is with the Lord. I mean, think about those that we love who are in Christ who've gone before us. They're in God's presence right now, you know. We just had a really great time of worship. I loved the, those songs that, that Billy did and he led us in and we got to come before the throne room of God. But could you imagine not singing in faith, but singing in reality? That's gonna be a great day when we're no longer singing in faith, but we're singing in the presence of the Lord. So very simply tonight, I hope that you're encouraged with the hope of heaven. Maybe you're going through a difficult season Maybe it's one of those catastrophic trials, or maybe every day is just challenging. It's not necessarily that someone has passed away, but it's just just life is challenging. Remember, each day that you live, you get closer to being home with the Lord. You are closer than you've ever been to being with the Lord. Isn't that good news, right? And also, as we see in the book of Revelation, that we're rushing towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not only is my life rushing towards heaven, but Jesus is rushing towards his soon return when he raptures the church and takes us home to be with the Lord. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, there's one verse that's really important. It's chapter 1, verse 19. It's the divine outline of the book of Revelation. Let's go back and look at that. It'll help us as we go through uh, chapter 4. This is chapter 1, verse 19. This was the instruction to John. It says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So there's three divisions. Write the things which you have seen, the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Write the things which are, the message to the church, the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And then write about the things that will take place after this chapter 4 through the rest of the book of Revelation. And verse 1 opens with these words of chapter 4, after these things. It's the same Greek phrase that's used in verse 19. It's it's metatauta, after these things. So the question then is, is after what things? Now this is an interesting fact about the book of Revelation. From chapter 1 through chapter 3, the word church is used 19 times. It's a lot of times in a concentrated section of scripture. But then from chapter 4 through the rest of the book, you never see the word church mentioned again. And as you know, if you've studied the book of Revelation, that we're going to quickly get into the wrath of God called the tribulation. It's also called the wrath of the Lamb. That's how God describes this seven-year period. So it seems to indicate as we're studying the book of Revelation that God has raptured the church, that he has caught up the church, and the church is is with the Lord. And that's described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and chapter 5. And then you see a Christ-rejecting world that is receiving God's wrath. Now, there's people that have differing opinions on when the rapture is going to take place. And the good news is, is as you study it and you decide what you, you believe, that that doesn't determine your salvation. When you stand before God, he's not going to say, are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? Are you, are you pan-trib? Is it however it's going to pan out, you know? But, but I do want to point out to you that we don't see that the church mentioned. And then here we find after these things is it brings us into a new section in the book of Revelation. 
and tells us, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after this. John sees a door, and the door is opening up to heaven. Jesus is the door. We know that. Jesus says, I am the door. And to those that trust in Christ and believe in Christ, he opens the door for us into heaven. At some point, God is going to call us by name, and he's going to say, come up here. He's going to say, it's your time. You've spent enough time on earth, and now it's your time to come up and, and be with me. You trust in me, so I'm the way. I'm the door for salvation. We need to be clear on this. Our lives don't belong to us, amen? They belong to the Lord. And so we don't determine when we go home to, to be with the Lord. We don't take our own lives to be able to go, go to heaven. We don't end our lives prematurely. God has given us life, and life is a gift. What makes heaven good isn't because this life is so bad. I hope you understand that. Paul said he was torn between the two, where he had a desire to go to heaven, but he also had a desire to stay here and bear fruit. This life is good and is to be fruitful. The message is heaven is better. So it's not that we hate this life. It's that we enjoy this life with an anticipation for heaven, and we let the Lord choose when he calls us home. That's a disturbing culture that we we live in, where on the two sides of life, with abortion in the womb and now assisted suicide in the elderly years where we say, hey, go to the doctor and if the doctor says you're terminally ill, then you can choose to to end your life. It's wrong to end life in abortion and it's also wrong to end life in those, those elderly years, even when they're suffering. We know from a biblical perspective, God uses suffering, right? And we don't wanna suffer and we don't want our loved ones to suffer But it's not for us to choose and say, well, I'm suffering too much, so I'm going to end my life. It's to say, okay, God, you've got a purpose in this suffering, and I'm waiting till you call me home. I'm waiting till you give me the words to say, come up here. So so John gets this invitation in the Spirit, verse 3, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So John is still on the island of Patmos, but he's in the spirit. He's receiving a vision from the Lord. And the first thing that God chooses to show John about heaven is the throne. Isn't that interesting? God's throne. So much written in scripture about God's throne. And then there's one who is seated upon the throne. God is seated upon the throne. Notice about the throne, it says, a throne set in heaven. I've never noticed that before until this afternoon. And the word set means planted. The throne room of God is planted. And that's what John sees and and what he notices. And we're living in a very chaotic time, aren't we? Where things seem very uncertain. On a world stage, things seem uncertain. I can't tell how things are going to turn up in Syria, but it is a very troubling situation that's taking place. As you have Russia that's invested and You have Iran that's invested, and North Korea is supplying weapons, and the United States is involved, and you've got biblical prophecy in Ezekiel 38, and here's Israel involved in, well, how is all that going to pan out? I have no idea, but I do know that God's throne is set. 
Even in our country, we're seeing laws change, and, and the, the cultural climate towards Christianity is changing. But guess what? God's throne is set. There may be things changing in your life. Maybe you go, my job situation is changing. There's relationships that are changing. Finances are changing. My health is, is changing. Well, guess what? God's throne is, is planted. No matter what news we get on this planet, it never changes the fact that God's throne is planted. It's set. John was going through a hard time. He's exiled on, on Patmos. The church is, is being persecuted. What would it be like for those that read Revelation for the first time to go, God's throne's planted. God's throne is, is established and take great joy in that. And then God is seated upon his throne. God always depicts himself as seated upon his throne. He's making a statement. When you're sitting down, it's a position of rest. It's not a position of anxiety or worry or, or concern. God's not on his throne pacing going, man, I don't know what's going to happen with Syria. This is, this is really stressing me out, right? Or, man, that, that group at Rocky Mountain Calvary, a bunch of knuckleheads. I, I just, I don't know if they're going to make it, right? He, what stresses us out doesn't stress God out. And that's good news, isn't it? I can't transfer my, my stress to God. Isaiah 40 tells us that God doesn't get to a place where he's weary or he's tired. Aren't we thankful for that? That, that God's not up there going, man, I'm, I'm just so sick and tired of hearing about everybody's problems. It's, a, it's wearing me out, you know? I just, I need a nap. This is exhausting, right? None of that. He's just seated upon his throne. Also, the work of salvation has been completed. He can be seated upon his throne because Christ has died. He's risen again. He's ascended and seated next to the Father on the right hand of the Father, where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Church, those that are in Christ, you're going to see this. Isn't that going to be awesome? You're going to behold it with your eyes. God tells us that we're going to receive a glorified body, where, where this body is resurrected. And so with our eyes, with our glorified body, we're going to see God. We're going to behold God. We're going to worship God. We're going to be at the throne room of God. In verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like emerald. So as God is sitting upon the throne, we see this word like. John is trying to bring into perspective, to bring into human language what God looks like, and he uses two gems, and the first is jasper. This jasper is a clear stone. It's in contrast to the opaque jasper stones known today. It may have re resembled a diamond. So the jasper stone would have emphasized the light, that God is, is light. The sardis stone is also known as a ruby. The NIV translates it as ruby, in the Old Testament, and the Sardis stone was a ruby red colored stone. So we have clear light and we have red depicted in these two stones, which clearly point to Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. His love lights up our lives, but he's also red because of his blood that was sacrificed for us upon the cross. Also, this rainbow that is around the throne in appearance like an emerald. 
An emerald is the, the green variety of beryl, the most famous and valuable green gemstones. Color in and of itself is very interesting when you, you study color and what causes us even to be able to, to perceive light. God created us with the ability to perceive color, and when we get to heaven, our visual senses are going to be blown away by these colors that are all going to point us to the glory of God. These things are unlocked for us in the Old Testament. Where do we see a rainbow in the Old Testament? With Noah. Noah was saved by God's grace. God was gracious to Noah and to his family. In being gracious to Noah, God was being gracious to all of humanity. If God wasn't gracious to Noah, we wouldn't be here today. And then God, with the rainbow, says, I am never going to destroy the world again with a flood. And the rainbow points to God's grace, God's faithfulness to his gracious commitment, to his gracious covenant. Also with the jasper and the sardis stone in Exodus 28, they were the first and last stone of the 12 stones that the high priest would wear upon his breastplate. So it's very specific. While God chooses these stones, he's saying that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. In verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, behold, in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So we don't know for sure the identity of the 24 elders. God doesn't give us their names, probably by design. We'd get all caught up with their names. And who, who are these, these 24 elders? But there's 24 thrones that are small thrones in comparison to, to God's thrones. And these 24 elders then are sitting as well, and they have white robes, and they have crowns of gold on their heads. There's a lot of discussion and debate and commentary on the identity of these 24 elders and what they represent. Ultimately, we don't know. I think it points to the church. And it points to the leadership of the church. And why is that? I think because of what they're wearing. White robes, crowns of gold on their head. And we know from the church of Sardis that God promised white robes. And the church of Philadelphia, he promised a crown. And a throne was promised to the church of Laodicea. So as we studied the churches, these are all rewards that God granted to the churches. More importantly of who they are, it's what they're doing. In the next few verses, we're going to see that these 24 elders are worshiping the Lord. And as we get a vision and a hope for heaven, hopefully we follow the example of the 24 elders and of the living creatures. So basically as this, speaking of light, the sun is just perfect off of our concrete pavement and it's blinding me. God's giving me a message, right? The eh, talk from over here. <laughs> so if we were to get the key factors in this chapter, you've got John with a vision of heaven, the, the throne room of God, God seated upon his throne, then 24 elders, and then four living, living creatures. So verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. So some, from God's throne is lightning, thunder, and and voices. What happens when we hear lightning and thunder? 
Uh, this week, I think it was like on a Monday or a Tuesday, I was in Home Depot on one of my days off, and uh, there was this big thunder and lightning, right? And just kind of, this time of year, you don't really expect it, and you just, just kind of jump, and you're like, well, I hope they made the roof good here in, in, in Home Depot. Thunder and lightning lets you know that the storm is coming, right? You're, you're usually in a storm, or the storm's coming quickly if there's thunder and lightning, and as thunder and lightning's coming from God's throne, in context of the book of Revelation, it's that God's judgment is coming. Also, voices. I think this verse points to the power of when God moves. When God moves, it's powerful. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's voices, and that's why God instructs us to pray that not our will, but his will be done as in heaven as it is on earth. God, what's, what's on your mind, on, on your throne, I want in my life. And when God moves, he moves in power. He shakes things. Also, there's seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits of God symbolized in these seven lamps of, of fire. This is the third time in the book of Revelation that we've seen seven spirits. We know that there's one Holy Spirit. There's not seven spirits in in that sense. And so again, there's a lot of question on what is this? Is this seven angels? You know, or are these seven attributes that are all fulfilled in, in the Holy Spirit? And that seems to be the case, that these seven spirits represent the manifold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then I Isaiah 11, verse 12, we see a description of the work of the Spirit. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And there's seven attributes that are are listed here. But we can clearly state this. We know that the churches were lampstands, weren't they? And as the Spirit of God is moving in the churches, the churches are fulfilling their purpose. And here the seven spirits are represented in these seven lamps burning before the throne room of God. Don't remove all of the mystery from the word of God or the book of Revelation. There should be enough humility inside of us that says we don't fully understand who the 24 elders are and what the seven spirits are. But when we get to heaven, we don't want to be biblically illiterate and say, I remember reading this in the book of Revelation. God, what's the seven spirits? You know, show me that clearly because it's listed uh, in your word. In verse six, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. God is communicating things through this figurative language. The throne, there was a sea of glass and it's like crystal. So why would this be depicted in front of the throne room of God? If you've ever gone to a lake and it's a very calm day, it, it probably wasn't a lake in Colorado. But <laughs> I think our winter has been redefined as wind. That's what we get in winter uh, here in Colorado. But if you've ever been to a lake and it's really calm, what's the expression? It's a sea of glass, right? So this sea is, is so calm. It's like a sea of glass. It's like, it's like crystal. That's how calm it is. And this is what we find when we spend time in the presence of God. Jesus, because of his sacrifice, the veil of the temple was torn. And in the throne room of God, in the heavenly reality, we are invited into God's presence. Where God says, come boldly into the throne room of God. 
to receive grace in, in time of need. And at the throne room of God, there is a lake, there's a sea that is calm, like, like crystal. And many times in our lives, when do we experience calm in our hearts? It's in the presence of God. When we spend time worshiping and we're focused upon his character, there's a calm in our hearts. We spend time meditating upon his word. We spend time in prayer, not just saying words, but entering into God's presence, taking time to sit and listen to him. I mean, in a moment, God can do so much in our lives when we spend time in in his presence. If you're going through difficulty tonight, know that God is with you. He has prepared a place for us to, to come and spend time with him in his presence, at his throne, and we, we start to get a sense in our hearts, okay, everything's okay. God, you've got this. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but you're, you're with me. I'm, I'm resting in you. I, I'm abiding in you. And again, the trials of this life, the diagnoses that we experience, the bad news that we receive, our own struggles with, with sin, our own failures, it doesn't threaten this sea of glass. There's no tsunami that can come into this environment around the throne room of God. There's no tropical storm or hurricane. At the throne room of God, God's not going to go, oh, here's a, here's a category five. These guys really messed things up, and now there's, there's a tsunami right here. This is always a sea of glass. It's always a place of calm. Also, the sea of glass would reflect the brilliant colors. Isn't that true? These brilliant colors that are coming from God himself, he, he's the source of light, would radiate off of this sea of glass. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. This is just trippy, right? <laughs> and this is not the only place in scripture that we see these four creatures. Also in Ezekiel chapter 1. If you go and back and read Ezekiel chapter 1, he even has a more descriptive vision of these four creatures. And these creatures have eyes all around their head. They're kind of like your mom, glorified mom, right? <laughs> Watch out, mom's got eyes in the back of her head, right? And as we look at these living creatures, they do all point to God. They they're created by God for God's glory, and they, they point to the Lord. These eyes ultimately speak to the knowledge of God, that God ultimately is the one who sees and knows all things. And when we come to the throne room of God, we're asking for God's wisdom. We're asking for his vision. We're asking for, for his uh, perspective. In verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Pretty cool, right? Again, it's important, this word like. John's saying, okay, I see this, and what's the closest thing that I can describe it to? This first living creature's got a face like a lion. The second living creature's got got a face like a, a calf. The third living creature a face like a man. And then the fourth living creature, like a, a flying eagle. John Wolverd, in his commentary on Revelation, writes this about this section. He says, probably the four living creatures symbolically represent the attributes of God. 
including his omniscience, his omnipresence, indicated by the creatures being full of eyes, with the four animals bringing out other attributes of God, the lion indicating the majesty and omnipotent, the ox or the calf, typically of faithful labor and patience, man indicating intelligence, and the eagle, the greatest bird, representing supreme sovereignty. Another possible view is that they represent Christ as revealed in the four Gospels. In Matthew, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Mark, the ox, as the servant of Yahweh. In Luke, the incarnate human, Jesus. And in John, the eagle, as the divine son of God. So these living creatures, they're pointing to ultimately the glory of God and possibly the attributes of God. Now, obviously, the main attraction is God upon his throne, no doubt. We're going to spend a a lot, a lot of time gazing upon God and seeing God and worshiping God. But there'll probably be that moment where we check out these living creatures as well, right? We're going to go, okay, I remember that these guys were were written about in the book of, of Revelation. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they didn't rest day or night. So not only do they have interesting faces, but they have six wings, and they're flying, and they're flying around the throne room of God. They don't need a rest. They don't take a rest, and they say this, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What we find around the throne room of God, even more importantly than the identity of the 24 elders and the identity of these four living creatures and what they represent is what they're doing. They're worshiping. And I believe that it's either 14 or 19. I'll have to go back and look it up. But there's 14 or 19 doxologies in the book of Revelation. And what that means is we find people around the throne room of God breaking out into worship breaking out into song, and they're saying, and they're singing this to the Lord, holy, holy, holy. Now, why holy three times? Because God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're expressing the fact that God is whole. When we speak of the holiness of God, it's that he's whole. There's nothing in him that's sinful. There's nothing in him that's lacking, that he in and of himself is whole. He's in need of of nothing. And then Lord God Almighty. In seeing God, they're expressing his power and his might. The Lord God, he's Yahweh. He rules and reigns. He's all-powerful. And then his eternal existence, who was and is and is to come. Even in our lives, as we look past in our lives, he was. Even prior to us being believers, presently he is. And we know in our lives, in the future, he is to come. We think upon human history in the past, and God was. He was faithful. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And he's present, and he'll continue to be faithful throughout all generations, and he's going to come back. It speaks of his eternal existence. Church, we have the opportunity to get on board with the agenda of heaven. Heaven's going to be filled with a lot of wonderful things. We're going to have the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ, We're not going to be bored. I mean, just the food alone sounds delicious, right? But above all of those things, the agenda of heaven is the glory of God and being able to worship the Lord. There's there's no point here 
where it's like, you know, this is old hat. We've kind of said this enough. We get it. Yada, yada, yada. Blah, blah, blah. God's holy. We've said it a trillion times. Why would we, we say it again? Because God is holy. Because God's powerful. Because he has eternal existence. And the awe of God when we're in heaven is going to motivate worship for all of eternity. And so for us to choose in our lives now as we see more of who God is and experience his grace is to respond in worship an expression of, of who God is. In verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, I love this. Did you catch this? The 24 elders are spurred on by the four living creatures. So the four living creatures are going around, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders are like, yeah, that's true. Do you know what the word amen means? It means so be it. It's a word of agreement. You know, so if someone's praying or worshiping and you agree with that prayer, you say, amen, I, I, I agree. And sometimes in worship, as, as someone is worshiping the Lord, it spurs us on, doesn't it? And our spirit goes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what I should be doing. They're, they're lifting their voice to the Lord. And not that we're copying them, but we're moved by them. And their worship is, is contagious. Guys, I think that this is really how God uses us to impact people for Christ is, is worship. Like we're, we're just in love with God. We're, we're excited about God. And that then impacts other people. And they say, I want to worship. I want to have that relationship with Jesus. I want to experience that grace in the same way. I want to tell a story on Dan Johnson, our missions pastor, when we're in, in Uganda. Uh, it's, so we're uh, at the end of our trip, and we're staying in, at, at this hotel, and I come down. We're getting ready to go out for the day, and Dan's got this portable speaker, his Bluetooth speaker, that he can play worship off of his phone. And he was so excited about some worship music that he got the hotel staff together at the counter. He's like, you got to check this out. You know, so I've got this video of Dan dancing to worship at the desk. And he's got four or five Ugandan hotel staff around him. And he's just exposing them to the glory of God, not out of obligation, but he just really liked this song. And he wanted these Ugandans to be able to hear it. And that's awesome, isn't it? That, that's contagious worship. You know, that's what the Lord desires. And, and it's not like the, the six or the four living creatures were like, I want to impact others. They're just like, wow, God, you're amazing. And the result was that it spurred on the 24 elders and they fall down before him and they worship him who, who lives forever. The word worship means to turn toward and to kiss. The idea is to bow down in adoration. So the 24 elders, they have positions of responsibility, but yet they're not enamored with their position. They're enamored with Christ. And elders, spiritual leadership in the church, this represents what we should be doing is being worshipers, spending time in the presence of God. Not just caught up in all of the tasks that, that come with being an elder, but, but being a worshiper. And they're surrendering to the Lord they're crowns. We know through scripture the crowns are the rewards that we receive from the Lord. 
why are rewards going to matter? Because we're going to take those rewards that God graciously gave to us, and we're going to lay them back down at the feet of Jesus in awe of who he is. And what are they saying? What is their doxology before Christ? You are worthy, O Lord. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Jesus is worthy. God is worthy. Because of his power, because of his greatness, because he is the creator, but also because he's the savior who's gracious to us. The father who sent his son. The son who willingly laid down his life. There's no one else that loves us that way. And so because of that, because of who God is and the loving sacrifice that he made, he's worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. All glory and all honor and power goes to Jesus. There's going to be no one in heaven that's singing an anthem to themselves. All self-love, self-adoration, self-exaltation is going to be left here on this earth. The only praise is going to be given to Jesus, that he receives all glory, honor, and power. And then for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So God created us, and it's through his will that we exist, and we're created for his will. We're created for worship. That, that is what God has designed for us to be and designed for us to do. Now, church, I know we're looking for purpose in our lives. And we're saying, maybe my purpose is found in marriage. Maybe my purpose is found in being a parent. Maybe my, my purpose is found in being used by God. Maybe my purpose is found, found in my job. Nope, all those things are fine, but that's not what we were designed for in our purpose. What we were designed for is to be a worshiper of God. And as we come to that place of realizing his goodness and his grace and responding to that in surrender, that's where we find fulfillment. That's where we find satisfaction is being a worshiper. And God won't allow anything else to satisfy. If you're looking to kids, you're looking to marriage, you're looking to jobs, you're looking to ministry, thinking, well, maybe if I be a missionary, I'll be satisfied, or if I could lead people to the Lord, or... or be, be used by God? No, none of that is going to satisfy only being a worshiper. The first time the word worship is mentioned in the scriptures is in Genesis 22 when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar. And Isaac says, or excuse me, Abraham says, Isaac and I are going to go and worship and we will come back to you. He believed that God would raise up his son, even if he were to sacrifice him because he was the promised son. Abraham saw surrender as worship. The four living creatures and the 24 elders see the majesty of God and they're just surrendered. They're saying, God, I am surrendered to you. And that, that's worship in our lives. Is there anything that we're holding on to so closely or so dearly that we haven't surrendered it at the feet of Jesus in worship? Jesus gives us an incredible promise, church. He says that he is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. We think about seeking God, but Jesus is looking to draw near to people that say, I'm going to seek him in his word, and I'm going to seek him in my spirit. 
I'm going to worship him in his word, but I'm going to worship him in my spirit. He's worthy, and I'm going to bow down to him, and I'm going to turn towards him and to kiss and, and adore and surrender everything in my life to him to be a living sacrifice. Then everything flows out of that. Marriage is an expression of worship. You know, living it out with our kids is an expression of worship. Trying to be a witness is an expression of worship coming through a relationship with God, not something that we're trying to to conjure up. So here's a few things to consider as application from this text, and we'll be done. The first is get excited about heaven. Get excited about heaven. If you know Christ as your Savior and you're the child of God, you are heaven-bound, and it's going to be good, glorious, glorious, good. Amen? So get a big smile on your face going, I don't have to let my heart be troubled because I know that I'm going to heaven. And then access the throne now. Access the throne now. Jesus invites us to, to the throne, to this very place. And more importantly, to this very person, our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and come boldly to the throne. And realize when you're coming to the throne, you're coming to the most powerful place that ever exists, right? You're having the greatest appointment ever possible. Think of that, that one Christian that you would really like to meet, that author, that, that speaker, someone that you really look up to and go, man, if I could just have lunch with them. You can have an appointment with God, the creator of the universe, whenever you desire. So, so let's access the throne, and then let's get engaged in the agenda of heaven. Get engaged in the agenda of heaven. Let's stop looking to the things of this world, looking to even good things, and look to the Lord and realize I'm existed to worship. And we have opportunity to do that tonight as we, as we take communion and we enter back into worship. Allow communion to be that expression of fellowship and surrender before the Lord. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of heaven, the gift of eternal life. And God, as believers, would you just instill in us the hope that would never die, the hope that we're going to forever be with you, and that's when everything's going to be made right, that we're going to see you, we're going to behold you, we're going to be at this sea of glass We're going to observe the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And God, help us to take access to what you've freely given us to come into your throne. Even as we enter into communion tonight, may it be a sweet time of fellowship with you. Would you take us deeper in worship? May we see you for who you are and respond in in worshiping you. Father, I pray for those that don't know you, that tonight would be a a night of salvation and a night of of coming to know you and receiving Christ. Let's just continue in an attitude of prayer. You know, as we we talk about heaven, I don't want to make the mistake to assume that everyone's going to heaven. We referred to Jesus being the door. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How are you saved? It's not through good works. It's not by being a good person. But realizing you're a sinner, the Bible calls it repentance, turning away from sin and crying out to Jesus. Jesus, be my savior. I believe that you died for me and you rose again. And I'm inviting you to be my Lord, to be my savior. If you've never made that decision and Jesus is drawing you, you wanna receive Christ as your savior, you wanna know that you have eternal life, the 
alternative is being eternally separated from God because of rejecting Christ. If you'd like to receive Christ your Savior, just raise your hand and leave it up high and I'm gonna say a prayer with you. You're not joining a church, but you're saying, Jesus, save me. I wanna receive you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. That's you. Just raise your hand high and leave it up and grab my intention and I'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Praise God, I see your hands there in the back. Anybody else that says, that's me, I wanna receive Christ. Praise the Lord, I see your hand in the back as well. As hands are raised, just pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins, and that you rose again. I repent of my sin and receive your forgiveness. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, I just thank you tonight for those that have responded to the gospel. You tell us that angels rejoice when those come to know you. So God, would you bless them? Would you encourage them? May their life forever be changed by you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.